The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Today, uh, we'll be covering some familiar territory, and uh, we'll be jumping into to Daniel chapter 7 next week, so one more week before we jump into Daniel. Uh, but as we've been uh, celebrating uh, Thanksgiving this week and gathering together with uh, family and friends, I wanted to remind you that there's another celebration and another gathering uh, that we want to make sure that we don't miss, and it's the celebration of Jesus Christ. In uh, Matthew chapter 22, which is the middle of Passion Week, uh, Jesus had entered triumphantly into the city. He had already entered into the city triumphantly and was publicly proclaimed as the king, just as the scriptures predicted that he would. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus this week had also cleansed the temple by his divine authority, tossing out the money changers, animal sellers who took advantage of the worshipers. Zeal for the house of the Lord had consumed him, just as was predicted of him in Psalm 69 and verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And what Jerusalem was witnessing was the fulfillment of the prophetic word, that the Son of God had come, that the Messiah was here, and that this should have been a cause for celebration for everyone to come and see Jesus, to celebrate Jesus Christ. But as John chapter 1 and verse 11 said, he came to his own and his own did not what? They did not receive him. They didn't celebrate Jesus Christ. Religious leaders were guilty of rejecting their Messiah, rejected his teachings. They rejected the, the miracles, the works that he performed. In chapter 23, there's going to be a scathing rebuke of the leaders. But Jesus also turns his attention to the crowds that witnessed all that Jesus did and benefited from his miracles. And we find out that he here rebukes them for refusing to celebrate him. That's the question that I have for you today. Do you celebrate Jesus Christ? Are you celebrating Jesus Christ? Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 22, just verses 1 to 14. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for a son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I've prepared my dinner My oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together. All they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there 
who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this day. And uh, Father, as we always do, we ask for your help as we open up your word. Now, Father, your, your word is true. Your, your word is powerful. Your, your word accomplishes that which it's set out to do. And Father, today I pray that it would convict hearts. Now, Father, that you would challenge us who do know you, Lord, that we would celebrate the Son. And for those who do not know you, Lord, that they would enter into this celebration. Now, Father, I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, my wife and I uh, celebrated our anniversary in New York, and we had a chance to catch a Broadway show. It was The Lion King. And in the opening scene, you have uh, The Lion King, Mufasa, who's presenting his son Simba to the entire animal kingdom. And every animal on Pride Rock is there except Mufasa's brother, Scar. And Mufasa pays him a visit and says, Sarabi and I didn't see you at the presentation of Simba. And Scar, faking astonishment, replies, Oh, that was today? I, I simply feel awful. Must have slipped my mind. Zazu, the king's chief servant and spokesman, pipes up and says, Yes, well, as slippery as your mind is, as the king's brother, you should have been the first in line. To which Scar snarls, Well, I was first in line until the little hairball was born. That hairball, replied Mufasa, is my son and your future king. Oh, said Scar. I shall have to practice my curtsy. What's my point? There are some celebrations that you can't miss without incriminating yourself. To miss the celebration of the king's son was inexcusable. And the same is true about Jesus Christ. It's a clear sign of rebellion when you refuse to celebrate the king. Missing the celebration of the king was evidence that there was a mutiny in the making. And this is exactly the kind of scene that Jesus is describing with this parable. And because of our lack of familiarity with ancient kings, we might be tempted to look at a parable like this and say, you know, what's, what's the big deal about missing a celebration? I mean, yeah, it's a celebration, but, you know, is that such a big deal? But in this context, it would have been unmistakable treachery. Because to miss the celebration of the king would actually say that I wish somebody else were king. I'm not joining in this celebration because I have somebody else in mind. And there's three distinct movements in this parable. There's the resistance of the invited, the reception of the chosen, and the rejection of the intruder. Let's take a look at the rejection or the the resistance of those who were invited in verses 1 through 7. Here you have Jesus again. He says he speaks to them in in a parable. And again, parables are just to remind you uh, from that Greek word parabole, which uh, uh, para means uh, beside, bala means uh, to throw or to cast. It's to, to throw something alongside another in order to make a comparison. And uh, Jesus takes true and kind of ordinary stories and gives a super extraordinary meaning to it. You know, true to heaven point. Basic definition of a parable, as some says, is uh, an earthly story with the heavenly meaning. And that's a good way to summarize it. 
And often in the parables, Jesus would compare things to the kingdom of, of heaven, which is another way to speak of God's rule, God's dominion, things underneath God's control. And that's what Jesus does here. This is a reminder to Jerusalem that God was in charge, and regardless of how things may look, Jesus is really the one who's going to be coronated as the true king. And he tells them the story that would have been understood by all, the celebration of the king's son. And he says the, the kingdom of, of heaven, verse 2, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for a son. And here with, with just a few syllables, Jesus paints an entire scene before us. MacArthur points out that the king would have been the greatest monarch imaginable. A wedding is the greatest celebration imaginable. And the son would have been the most honored person imaginable. No expense would have been spared to honor the king's son. You can't imagine a greater celebration than this. It's pointed out that the wedding feast was not just a a single feast, but rather it was a celebration that lasted for days. According to Judges chapter 14, it was typical for a, a marriage feast to last for an entire week. In Judges 14, Samson speaks of the seven days of a marriage feast, you know, Imagine uh, if, if, if you're a wedding planner during those days, planning for a seven-day feast. I mean, that's what it was going on back here. Some cases, a marriage feast could last for as long as two weeks. You know, if you thought you had a hard time planning your wedding. You know, two-week long wedding? And, and imagine planning a, a, a meal like Thanksgiving every day for every one of those days. I mean, you had to feed all these guests. This was an incredible celebration. It's a catering nightmare. The wedding feast was so tied to the wedding that the word for wedding and the word for feast was actually the same word in Greek. Gamos, the, the word for uh, wedding, is actually the same word used for wedding feast. Actually, uh, uh, gamos, we, uh, uh, the, the, the root for the, the word monogamos is actually found from this word. It's the, the wedding feast, the wedding and the wedding feast combined. And before I leave this point, I think it's uh, uh, important to note that uh, Christianity is an invitation to a celebration. <laughs> well, when we're inviting people to come to Christ, we're inviting people to come and celebrate. We're inviting people to come to a celebration. You know, sometimes we uh, think about the denial, you know, the self-denial and, you know, death, you know, uh, even picking up your cross to follow after Jesus Christ. Uh, but we forget that there's something on the other side of that. <laughs> you know, what we're, what we're inviting people to is a, is a celebration. It's no accident that the kingdom of heaven is described as a feast it's, it's a celebration, and it's no accident that the church is described as the bride of, of Christ. There is joy in heaven, and this would have been revealed by the language of a marriage feast. Revelation 19 says, uh, Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So heaven is not a fast, heaven is a feast. And the path to heaven is through a straight gate, a narrow way, but it's a gate that leads to life. We're inviting people to a celebration. Don't forget that Christianity is a road that leads to life. The hymn writer John Newton wrote, Solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. We're, we're the ones who know the, the solid joys and the lasting treasures. Kingdom of Heaven is a, is a treasure hidden in the field that's worth selling everything that you have in order to gain this treasure. Just as this banquet was worth canceling every plan that you had in order to make sure that you showed up, that you were a guest at this feast. But here we have in verse 3, the, the invitation goes out. Verse 3, he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. 
unimaginable. This is shocking. A shocking twist to the stories. Jesus often placed these, these shocking twists in his stories. Shocking twists that would have caused people to shake their heads. I mean, what do you mean they were unwilling to come? The, 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 the wedding feast of, a, of the king's son, are they crazy? Do you know how many people would have wanted an invitation to this wedding feast? You know, our world was glued to the, the wedding of uh, you know, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. 1.9 billion people watched the wedding on television around the world. That's 1.9 billion people that didn't get an invitation. 1.9 billion people. Only 600 people received an invitation to this wedding. Could you imagine being in England, receiving an invitation and deciding, you know what, I've got something else I'd like to do instead. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. 1.9 billion people had to watch and you could have been there present to actually be there to taste the food, to see it all, to see what's behind the scenes. It's unimaginable that you would just say, I I just didn't want to go. I was unwilling to go. Insanity. And instead of the king immediately lashing out against this obvious disrespect towards his son, what does the king do? Another shocking feature of the story. Verse 4, again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. What kind of king goes through the trouble of describing the menu to people who have just rejected his invitation? This is shocking to to stoop to this level. Let me tell you about all the joys that you'll receive if you come to the celebration. Look look at the menu. I mean, everything's ready. It's it's all prepared. My oxen, my fat and livestock, they're all butchered. Everything is ready. All you have to do is come. But what do they do? Verse 5. But they still, they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. Unbelievable. And as Jesus walked this earth, there were many people who saw the miracles, who heard his teaching, who witnessed his, his impeccable life, and they still said, you know what? I'm not really interested. I've got something else that I'd, I'd rather be doing with my life than following after this king. I will not have this king to rule over us. These are the invited ones. Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist announced that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, he preached the message in the wilderness of Judea. That was a message for those that were invited. When Jesus gave his disciples authority, sent them out to preach, he sent them with specific instructions. Matthew chapter 10, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to Israel. They're the ones that receive the invitation. Tell them everything's ready. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the king. Come and join in the celebration. They're going to those that were invited. When Jesus was approached by a Canaanite woman, he replied in Matthew 15, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm going to those that were invited. The Jewish people were the guests that were already familiar with the idea of the kingdom, the coming Messiah. They were given the warning that they needed to to make the way ready, make his path straight, to receive the Lord. They should have been prepared to receive the kingdom. But again, like John 1 and 11 says, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. 
thousands were happy to receive the invitation. They heard the teaching. They received the miracles. Many of them were even baptized. But when it came to making the formal commitment to say, I'm, I'm signing up, I'm willing to come, they all rejected him. And Jesus cries and weeps over Jerusalem, Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the children of Jerusalem. Gather your children together the way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Unwilling. And they came up with all kinds of excuses. Just as people do today when you invite them to turn to Christ. Back in uh, Matthew chapter 8, just want, want you to see this real quick. Back in Matthew chapter 8. We have, uh, we have a list of excuses. The excuse makers are here. Matthew chapter 8. Look at verse 19. You have a scribe. It says, Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Doesn't it sound so good? Teacher, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I've seen you. I've heard you. I, I, I want to sign up. I am with you. I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 20, Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And you hear the screech of the tires. Are you kidding me? And here Jesus didn't answer what the scribe was saying. He answered what the scribe was thinking. The scribe here is thinking, well, hey, if I follow you, you know, that this life is going to just be filled with all the pleasantries, all the comforts that I could imagine. I'll follow you wherever you go. Somehow this scribe thought following Christ would bring with it a guarantee of physical comfort. And Jesus basically says, are, are you ready to be treated worse than an animal? Because <laughs> foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't have anywhere for you. Well, you know what? Um, I'm not sure about that. There was another disciple who seems to be listening to the conversation, proclaims his loyalty to Jesus. Look at verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And that sounds so noble, doesn't it? All I want to do is bury dear old dad. I mean, please. I mean, certainly that's, that's a worthy reason to, to, to postpone my following of you, isn't it? Of course it would be right if his father was really dead. <laughs> but there's good reason to believe that this man's father had yet to die. Why? Because if his father had died, why wouldn't he be there with him? <laughs> The family had the responsibility to bury their dead. If he knew that his father was dead, what is he doing outside? Most Jewish burials also happened within 24 hours. It happened quickly. In Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira died, they were buried immediately. If his father had died, he would have been in the process of digging a grave, laying his father to rest if his father had died. And if the father had died and he had just been involved in, with a dead body, he would be unclean. He couldn't even be out in public during this time. So it's clear that his father is not yet dead. He's waiting for him to die. Why do you think he's waiting for his father to die? Well, now that I've just heard that you don't have a, a hole or a nest, I mean, maybe I need to wait for my dad to die first, and then I can get the inheritance and, you know, get a, get a little nest egg here. I need to save up for the hard times because, Jesus, you're not promising me anything. I've got to get this myself. So, so wait for my father to die first. Let me get my inheritance first. Let me fund myself first, and then I'll come and 
follow you. And what does Jesus say? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Follow me. That's what you have to listen to. Reasons, excuses that people give for not following after Jesus Christ. A similar parable over in Luke chapter 14, if you want to flip over there, Luke 14. Similar parable that he gives here, starting at verse 16 in Luke chapter 14. It says, but he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Got to test drive these oxen. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. Excuses. The land's not going to be there. You got the oxen, you can't try them out later. And why don't you bring your wife along? (laughs) You've married a wife and you can't come. Why don't you bring her with you? But this is how many people respond when you share the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why don't you follow Jesus now? What would prevent you from turning your life over to Jesus Christ now? You know that there's a God. You know that you sinned against this God. You know that one day you'll have to appear before him. You'll have to meet your maker, meet your creator. And you have no idea when that time will come. What would prevent you from following after Jesus Christ today? Well, you know, I I got to get myself together first. You know, I'm just trying to make it today. I don't, don't really have time to think about that far in the future yet. I've actually had somebody respond to me like that. I'm just trying to make it today. You know, I, I, I'm not going to get a job. It's, I mean, I, I need to, to pay my bills. You, you don't have bills if you die. <laughs> why, why would that be a reason to prevent you from following after Jesus Christ? Tomorrow's not promise, but eternity is. You don't know if you'll have tomorrow on this earth. I've heard it said that Satan doesn't have to convince you that Christianity isn't true. He just has to convince you that you have more time to make up your mind. You don't have time. How do you know what time you have? In in, in James, it talks about how it's foolish. It's arrogant. It's wicked. To say, oh, you know, tomorrow I'm going to do this and that, and then I'm going to sell here and buy there, and then we're going to do business there. That's arrogant, because you have no idea that you'll be here tomorrow. An old song I remember growing up, tomorrow, I'll give my life tomorrow. I thought about today, but it's so much easier to say tomorrow. But who promised you tomorrow? Better choose the Lord today, for tomorrow may very well be too late. There's nothing going on in your life that's worth, out, worth missing out on this celebration. Nothing. Nothing. But there's many who are preoccupied. And there's the hostile. Look back in Matthew chapter 22 again. There's those who reject in a hostile way. Starting at verse 5, it says, They paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves. 
So you have those that are preoccupied, paying no attention. I've got my farm. I've got my business. And then you've got those that respond in a hostile way, seizing his slaves, mistreating them, killing them. Violent response to the message. They mistreated the servants who invited them to the feast. And how many times does that happen? You go to give somebody good news. (laughs) I've got some great news for you. Your sins can be forgiven. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you can have eternity in heaven. And then they attack you. Like like you just slapped them in the face or something. I mean, I'm trying to share some good news with you. This This is good news. Do you understand what I'm offering you? But no, they, how, how do you know that your way is the only way? How dare you put, shove your religion down my throat? I'm giving you an invitation. <laughs> but no, it's, it's perceived as shoving religion down your throat. How arrogant that you would think that your way is the only way. And you had the same kind of people who existed here. They mistreated the servants who invited them to the feast. Jesus rebuked the chief priests and the elders. Matthew 21, 32, it says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. What did they do? They rejected his ministry, stood silently while he was taken captive by Herod. He was mistreated and finally murdered. And that's the story for so many who came before him. So many prophets. Jesus doesn't even ask what should happen to those who mistreat and murder the king's servants. Look at verse 7. But the king was enraged. And he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And what you might not pick up on in this, this illustration that's given here is that the hostile murderers and the preoccupied rejectors all end up in the same place. Because what did he say? What does he say? He sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers, set their city on fire. Everybody is part of the flame. Everybody received the punishment. King is enraged. Refusing to celebrate the sun as a capital offense. Psalm 2 verse 6 says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Do homage to the sun, verse 12, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the only place to seek refuge from him is in him. You, you run to the sun to escape the sun. We might not understand what's the big deal about missing a wedding, but it's a direct challenge against his sovereignty. It's a direct challenge. Ancient Near Eastern cultures would have immediately understood that. You don't rejoice, if you don't rejoice in the reign of a king, it's because you want somebody else. And the scribes and the Pharisees were happy to have anybody else besides Jesus. And in great prophetic accuracy, this burning of the city is exactly what happened in 70 A.D. Under Emperor Vespasian, the temple was destroyed. Various parts of the city were burned. Numerous prisoners were taken back to Rome. D.A. Carson notes that the savagery, slaughter, disease, and famine, which included mothers eating their own children, were monstrous, and that even though there may have been greater numbers of deaths, never was there so high a percentage of the great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated. Those who were invited refused the invitation. Hostile murderers, preoccupied rejectors, and they both suffered the same fate. 
And in verse 8, we move from the resistance of the invited to the reception of the chosen. Look at verse 8. It says, Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. There's going to be a celebration for this son. This son will have his celebration because he's worthy of it. There will not be an empty space in the kingdom. It's going to be filled. There's a theological tangent that I could take right now, and I'll refrain from doing that. But I will say this, John chapter 6 and verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. That, that's that's a, a number that the Father has that will come because every seat is going to be filled. Every seat at his banquet table will be filled with dinner guests. And it's those for whom it has been prepared. It says those who were invited were not worthy. They weren't worthy. What does it mean, not worthy? It means that they were unwilling. That's what it talks about. That's what it's talking about. Why were they unworthy? Because they were unwilling. They didn't do anything of worth to receive the invitation. It was their repudiation of the invitation that demonstrated their unworthiness. The similar use of the word over in Acts chapter 13, speaking about those who reject. Look over at Acts chapter 13 real quick. Acts chapter 13, I'll start at verse 42. It says, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, the proselytes being Gentile believers, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Why, why, why are you following after him and not us? And they were blaspheming, contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, the Jews, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Why were they unworthy? Because they were unwilling. Repudiated the message. It's the same thing that's happening here. The message of the kingdom was repudiated and it went from the synagogue to the streets. Now the message goes out. And that's exactly what I believe Matthew 22 is indicating, that the invitation for the kingdom is now going to go out beyond the Jewish people without discrimination. And all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's been dropping these hints that the Gentiles are included in this kingdom plan. It's the Gentile Canaanite woman who's told that your faith is great. In Matthew 12, uh, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 42. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And it's the Gentile centurion that's said to have a greater faith than anybody in Israel. This, This message that was in the synagogue is now going out to the streets. It's now going out to the, to the highways, and it would have been the highways that the Gentiles would have traveled. They would have made a connection between going out to the highways to, to, to getting into the proximity of the Gentile people who traveled these highways. The restriction 
to the lost sheep of the house of Israel was about to be done away with, and the Gentiles are about to come in. They're about to come in. In Acts chapter 10, we find Peter opening his mouth. He says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but every nation, the the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. They're they're welcome. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gentiles are coming in. And just to emphasize the universal nature of the call, Jesus says that they gathered both the evil and the good. You know, those who are externally righteous and externally wicked. Everybody is invited. External righteousness does not bring people any closer to Christ. And external wickedness does not push people further away from Christ. Because they all come through the gospel. Your righteousness is nothing but filthy rags in the sight of God. It doesn't bring you any closer to God. After a long list of sins that prevented people from entering the kingdom in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, it says, and such were some of you. Because <laughs> your sins did not prevent you from entering into the kingdom. The son of this king is going to be celebrated. This wedding hall is going to be filled. And it's not with the, the high and the, the mighty and the noble. It's with people like us. <laughs> We're the ones who are going to be coming and filling up the seats around this banquet table. And maybe you're here today and you're glad that, you know, I'm not part of that hostile crowd. I'm here. I'm I'm at Baltimore Bible Church. I'm I'm hearing the word. I'm not preoccupied. I, I accepted the invitation to come to church today. I'm not too busy to come to church. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll come and visit your church with you. Sure, I'd love to come and join you for church today. But the text lets us know that not all who came to the wedding feast were actually part of the celebration. There were some who came in the doors, but weren't seated at the table. Weren't seated at the table. There was a man who arrived in the wedding hall who wasn't prepared to enter the celebration of this king. Take a look at verse 11. It says, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. This is the rejection of the intruder. You have the resistance of the invited, the reception of the chosen, and now you have the rejection of the intruder. As, as the king looks over the guests, it's apparent that one of these guests is not like the other. There was one who wasn't dressed in wedding garments. And there's guilt about not being dressed in wedding garments. And we know that there was guilt because when he says, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? What did the man do? He was speechless. I have no excuse. I have nothing to offer you. There is no good reason that I can give you why I'm not dressed in wedding garments. He was unacceptable. And even though our culture is pretty casual, there's still a few places where proper clothing is still expected, right? (laughs) Certain restaurants won't give you service unless you're dressed in the proper attire. Certain jobs won't even take you seriously unless you come dressed in the proper attire. Celebration that takes place in a ballroom, a banquet hall, requires a certain kind of presentation. And there's still a kind of respect that's communicated 
at a wedding or at a funeral by how you dress, right? And again, if you're invited to a royal wedding, as is here, there's no excuse for you not to be prepared for this. In the middle of all the tuxes, the military uniforms, the ball gowns, you come up to one guy with a dingy t-shirt and ripped jeans. And what in the world? How did he get in there? And some people look at this parable and they question the king's response. I mean, come on, king, how, how, can, you, how can you be so harsh? I mean, these people were on the highways, the byways, they're going about their business and you drug them in here. How do they have time to go home and, you know, find something to wear to this wedding feast that you're having for your son? How, how can you expect this, king? How can you expect different than what he came in? You know, doesn't it just come as you are? <laughs> but if we compare this parable to a similar parable in Luke 14, the master of the house told his servants, go at once into the streets, the lanes, the city, bring here the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the slave master said, the slave said to his master, Master, you, what you have commanded is done, and there's still room. And they went out and gathered more along the hedges, compelled them to come in that my house may be filled. How do you expect people like this to be properly dressed? Why? Because he's the one that dresses them. He's the one that provides what they wear. There's a Palestinian folktale, one commentator reference, where Three poor maidens were invited to a palace and they asked for the appropriate clothing because they had none of their own. Where did they get it from? From the person who invited them. There's evidence from the ancient customs in this period in antiquity that tell us that ancient kings would actually provide the guests with what they wore. And it's implied that the people who arrived here were brought in in haste, so they didn't have time to go home. That's not what he's expecting here. But it's consistent with the imagery that we find in the rest of Scripture that God is the one that clothes you. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Who's the one that prepares you for the wedding feast? It's God. It's God. He's the one who clothes you with the garments of salvation. He wraps you in the robes of righteousness. Revelation 3, verse 18. I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that your shame, the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. Revelation 7, 14. These are the ones who come out of great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white. Where? In the blood of the Lamb. How do you clothe yourself with righteousness? You trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And, and you robe yourself with His righteousness. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Where do we get righteousness from? It's from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who clothes us with his righteousness and prepares us that we might be presentable, acceptable in the sight of God. He's the one who gives us our clothes. So why was this man speechless? Because he was trying to celebrate the son on his own terms. I'll come in my own righteousness. I don't need the righteousness of the son. You don't show up before this king any way you want. 
come any other way would have been a blatant show of disrespect. I don't want your gifts. I don't need your gifts. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to come in my own righteousness. And that's how I'll show up. This guy showed up in his own filthy rags. I'll do it my way. And how many people are doing it their way? Rejecting the righteousness of Jesus Christ for their own false religion. Presenting their own good works, good deeds before God as if somehow he's going to lower the bar of perfection to allow you in. He has no way to explain himself. That's what happens. He's bound up. The king said to the servants, bind him up. Bind him hand and foot. Throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a clear illustration of eternal hell. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It's talking about eternal hell. If you can't celebrate him, it's because you want another ruler. And we take no other rulers here. There's only one ruler. Jesus Christ. And if you can't celebrate him, you won't be celebrating at all. <laughs> it's weeping and gnashing of teeth for those that refuse him. And then we have this verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. What's the calling? The calling is the, uh, the external call. We, we go out and we compel people to come in. We call them to come in. As many as would listen to us, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, we explain the gospel, we share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the external call. That's what we're called to do. But then there's the, the call of God. Those who are, are chosen of God. Those, as John chapter 6 and verse 37 says, have been chosen by the Father. That will come. That will fill up the seats around the table. There's many that are called, but there's few who are chosen. There are people who rejected the invitation. There are people who are hostile against the invitation. There are people who received the invitation. And then there were those who just showed up. Spurgeon says, I feel in such a haste to go out and obey this commandment this morning to compel those to come in who are now tearing in the highways and hedges that I cannot wait for an introduction but must at once set about my business. Hear then, O ye that are strangers to the truth that is as it is in Jesus. Hear then the message that I have to bring to you. You have fallen, fallen in your father Adam. You've fallen also in yourselves by your daily sin and your constant iniquity. You've provoked the anger of the Most High. And as assuredly as you have sinned, so certainly must God punish you if you persevere in your iniquity. For the Lord is a God of justice and will by no means spare the guilty. But have you not heard? Hath it not long been spoken in your ears that God in his infinite mercy has devised a way whereby without any infringement upon his honor, he can have mercy upon you, the guilty and the undeserving? To you I speak and my voice is unto you, O sons of men. Jesus Christ, very God of very God, hath descended from heaven, was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, begotten of the Holy Ghost, he was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived in this world a life of exemplary holiness and of the deepest suffering till at last he gave himself up to die for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And now the plan of salvation is simply declared unto you, whosoever believeth in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. For you who have violated all the precepts 
of God. And I've disdained His mercy and dared His vengeance. There is yet mercy proclaimed. For whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Whosoever cometh unto Him, He will in no wise cast out. For He's able to save unto the uttermost them that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever lives to make intercession for us. Now all that God asks of you, and this He gives you, is that you will simply look at His bleeding, dying Son and trust your souls into His hands of Him whose name alone can save from death and hell. Is not this a marvelous thing? That the proclamation of this gospel does not receive the unanimous consent of men? One would think that as soon as ever this was preached, that whosoever believes shall have eternal life, every one of you, casting away every man his sins and his iniquities, would lay hold on Jesus Christ and look alone to His cross. But alas... Such is the desperate evil of our nature. Such the pernicious depravity of our character that this message is despised. The invitation to the gospel feast is rejected. And there are many of you who are this day enemies of God by wicked works, enemies to the God who preaches Christ to you today, enemies to Him who sent His Son to give His life a ransom for many, Strange, I say it is, that it should be so, yet nevertheless it is the fact, and hence the necessity for the command to compel them to come in. We have a celebration to join, don't we? The celebration of the sun. And we compel those who are around us in the highways, the hedges, the byways, to come and celebrate with us. Celebrate the sun. Do homage to the sun, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this text. And Father, as we've celebrated even this week, Lord, we know that there's a much greater celebration to be a part of. It's the celebration of the sun. And Father, I thank you for those who are here who are celebrating the sun today. And I pray for those who have yet to celebrate the sun, who've given excuses for why they, they can't celebrate the sun why it's not convenient to celebrate the sun, or even those who are hostile against the celebration of the sun. Father, I pray that, that they would be compelled to come in. <laughs> the, the feast is ready. Everything's been prepared. The clothes are prepared. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. And all they have to do is to turn to Christ, turn from their sins and find life in the Savior. Father, I pray that today would be the day why would you die in your sins when the offer of life has been given? And so, Father, I pray that today would be the day that you would draw men and women to yourself by the power of your gospel. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.